Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, Next Picture Show listeners. Here's a friendly reminder that if you enjoy the Next Picture Show, you'll really enjoy getting more Next Picture Show by subscribing to our Patreon. You can unlock ad-free versions of the podcast for $3 a month and get bonus episodes on current TV, movies we don't cover on the podcast, and other topics for $5 a month. We currently have bonus episodes on our reactions to the Oscar nominations and our thoughts on the latest season of True Detective Night Country. To subscribe to our Patreon, please visit patreon.com slash nextpictureshow. That's patreon.com slash next picture show. Very difficult to keep the line between the past and the present. Do you believe that someone out of the past can enter and take possession of a living being? We may be through with the past, but the past is not through with us. Welcome to the Next Picture Show, a movie of the week podcast devoted to a classic film and how it shaped our thoughts on a recent release. I'm Scott Tobias, here with... Genevieve Kosky. Keith Phipps, but for the sake of this recording, call me Keith Podcast Phipps. <laughs> <laughs> well, Tasha Robinson is away from us this week, but she's not mixing with college-age boys in Fort Lauderdale or Malia, which is a big relief to us based on this week's movies. In her place, we're excited to put on our Coke bottle glasses and play a little dialectic jazz with our special guest, Mariah Gates. Mariah is a freelance film and culture writer here in Chicago, whose work has appeared at RogerEbert.com, Vulture, The Playlist, and other fine publications. She also has a Substack newsletter called Cool People Have Feelings Too, highlighting movies directed by women. Hello, Mariah. Hey, great to be here. So it's only mid-February, but the year already feels long. So we've decided to take spring break a little early so we can all pile into cheap motel rooms by the pool have some beach time, get our fake IDs out, and maybe meet that special someone. Surely the films we're talking about this week will reinforce this excellent plan of ours, especially for the women in our group. Right, Genevieve? Mm, Not so sure about that, Scott. The new British coming-of-age film How to Have Sex, written and directed by Molly Manning Walker, starts with three teenage girls heading to the Greek Isles for the best vacation ever. But it doesn't go quite as planned, at least for one of them. In the resort town of Malia, which looks a bit here like a European Cancun, the trio arrive looking for a week of drinking, clubbing, and casual hookups, but one of them is a virgin and navigating these shark-filled waters proves to be especially perilous for her. How to Have Sex is about an environment where a combination of peer pressure, alcohol, and coercion can erode the boundaries of consent for young women who are just looking to have a good time. But these problems aren't unique to 2024. In the seemingly frivolous 1960s spring break romp Where the Boys Are, four women from a chilly Midwestern college head to sunny Fort Lauderdale looking for fun and romance, too. 
but they each have their own trouble meeting a partner they can trust. And things get a whole lot darker than a movie like this would lead you to suspect. So this week, we'll hop into the next picture show convertible and head south to Fort Lauderdale in search of handsome Ivy Leaguers and where the boys are. Then we'll keep the party going in Malia next week with how to have sex. And then we'll probably never leave the house again. Please stay with us. The screen jumps for joy with Glendon Swarthout's inside story of those uproarious Easter vacations. Gentlemen, the city of Fort Lauderdale is once again under fire from the north. Now, Fort Lauderdale is not the only community to be invaded at this time. In Palm Springs and in Newport, on the beaches of the Mid-Atlantic, the students of America are gathering to celebrate the rites of spring. Where's the beach? According to this, it's across the street. Join the fun as the gang tears loose where the boys are. There's plenty of room, all the comforts of home. Anybody here from Princeton? Come on, live it up with their laugh sessions, their romantic sessions, and those way out jam sessions. I want to start this keynote on where the boys are with the opening lines of Bosley Crowther's New York Times review written in January 1961. Crowther writes, quote, As fast as they are with the wisecracks, the cute situations, and the gags in Joe Pasternak's new color picture, Where the Boys Are, you may wonder that this observer is not overwhelmed by the mirth. The reason for that is simple. There is not much to laugh at in this film. There's a funny scene toward the middle in which a bunch of college kids, boys and girls who have joined the mass migration for spring vacation to Florida's Fort Lauderdale, plunge wildly into a glass tank full of water on a tropical nightclub stage in pursuit of one of their buddies who has been attracted by an aqua dancer's lungs. There's good, broad, healthy, young folks' humor in this one isolated scene, and it is significant that it drew the loudest laughter from the first audience yesterday at the music hall. But the rest of this widescreen observation of the springtime mating habits of college kids in their long-ordained gathering place in Florida is a little bit shocking and sad. End quote. Amen to that, Mr. Crowther. The funny scene described in this review is one of those ostensibly wacky moments when all of our drunken young revelers fall into the water fully clothed. And yet it's prompted by a guy who's so aroused by an underwater dancer that he dives into the tank to grope her because he can't control himself. It should also be noted that he's one of the good guys and where the boys are. A little wacky and sex-obsessed, but ultimately a project worth taking on. There may be 20,000 college kids descending on the beaches of the Atlantic Ocean for two weeks, but the dating pool in Fort Lauderdale is one shallow, muddy puddle. Nevertheless, a beach vacation sounds divine for four Midwestern college women who need a break from classroom stress and the snowstorm that has given them all the sniffles. In the class discussion that opens the film, Merritt, the smartest and most forward-thinking of the group, argues with her teacher about premarital sex suggesting that the post-Kinsey generation has different ideas about relationships than the generation before. But the friends who join her on a trip to Fort Lauderdale have the much more old-fashioned goal of finding a mate. As one of them, Tuggle explains, quote, Girls like me weren't built to be educated. We were meant to have children. That's my ambition, to be a walking, talking baby factory. Legal, of course, and with union labor, end quote. Merritt and Tuggle are joined by Angie, a hockey player can sing, and Melanie, who sets her sights on Ivy Leaguers. 
There turns out to be a guy out there for each of them, but they're not all winners, to put it mildly. Merritt, played by Dolores Hart, flirts with a rich Brown University player named Ryder, played by George Hamilton, but she's wary of his aggressive courtship. Tuggle, played by Paula Prentess, picks up and tolerates the obnoxious T.V. Thompson, played by Jim Hutton, a Michigan State student who hitchhikes to Florida and walks around with a police scanner. He's also the guy who dives in after the Aquanancer. Angie, played by Connie Francis, hooks up with a half-blind jazz musician, played by Frank Gorshin, and poor Melanie, played by Yvette Mimio, gets involved with a couple of supposed Yaleys who seize on her vulnerability and naivete. Melanie's odyssey with these two men, named Dill and Franklin, alters the tone of where the boys are to startling effect. Working from a novel by Glendon Swarthout, a writer better known for war stories and westerns like The Shootist, Where the Boys Are has an almost anthropological tone, beginning with a piece of narration about the 20,000 students who swarm to Fort Lauderdale every year, with the male of the species soaking up sun and beer, and the female of the species looking out for the boys. And while the film isn't reactionary, it does go to extraordinary lengths to show the power imbalance between men angling for sex and women trying to fend them off, or, in Melanie's case, trusting that their sexual interest will lead to something. In its darkest sequence, Melanie walks into traffic with a dress torn, having been left in a seedy motel after being raped, and later wakes up in a hospital upset that she isn't dead. Clearly, this is no ordinary spring break movie, though Where the Boys Are was a sizable low-budget hit for MGM. The film is, quote, a little bit shocking and sad, as Bosley Crowther wrote, but it's also unusually thoughtful, particularly as Merritt sorts through all that she and her friends have experienced. At the hospital, Merritt grows frustrated with Ryder, who's perhaps the best of the men in the film, but has nonetheless pushed himself on her and left her confused about his sincerity at times. Speaking of men, Merritt tells him, quote, I blame all of you who think of a girl as something cheap and common, just here for your personal kicks. Look, she got mixed up with the wrong people, he replies. To which her answer is, have you met any right ones lately? We'll talk about the wrong guys and the wronger guys after the break. What is it between you and that TV character? A potato chip orgy every day? Not every day, no. Sometimes we buy pretzels. (laughs) What's the difference so long as you're having fun? This is beginning to sound serious, is it? If you mean, has he measured me for a ring? No. If you mean if he ever suggests it, I'd think a long time. Like about 20 minutes before flinging myself on his chest. You'd get married? Well, what about school? Girls like me weren't built to be educated. We were made to have children. That's my ambition, to be a walking, talking baby factory. Legal, of course, and with union labor. So I had never seen Where the Boys Are before this pairing, and I have to say I was a little shocked by it. <laughs> were you shocked by it too? And I, and I guess this is a question for Mariah. How much does it deviate from other films of its kind? Because I, I don't think I've experienced that many. Well, first, I wanted to share, the audience can't see this, but I actually own Where the Boys Are on Blu-ray. <laughs> so um, I've seen this movie a lot. And what's interesting is it's coming at this time where you're coming out of the 50s and you're coming out of the like very repressed post-war era, right? And sexual mores are changing and you're starting to see it first in literature and then in these adaptations. And the adaptations are a little sanitized. Like, for example, in the book Where the Boys Are, there's a whole section where they're like raising funds for Castro and his revolution. 
not in the movie, but the sex is there and the consent lines are there. And you saw this in a lot of films in the late 50s, usually college age or just out of college going on an adventure. So you had, or getting into the workforce, you had something like The Best of Everything, which is another group of girls living together in a hotel and working and bad things happen to usually the most innocent person. You have things like Rome Adventure, you have Three Coins in the Fountain. I think what's interesting about where the boys are is it's the first one to really look at, these are basically teenagers, you know, they're all freshmen in college, as opposed to those earlier films where you're like, oh, you're, you're, to use that horrible phrase, free white and 21, right? These girls are not 21. They are teenagers. And it's really showing where you're going to, the country's going to go in the 60s, where you had teenagers starting to experience the freedom that usually you would see in movies with, you know, 22 year old characters, right? And then it started this whole genre of the beach party movie, which became like stripped everything away, all of the like politics, all of the questioning of the changing values of of young people into just, you know, frivolous, frothy party stuff. And so I think your thought of coming to this movie thinking it's just going to be that is because you're you watched probably some of the films that came later that really stripped everything away. Um, But there's this really rich period from like 1956 or so to 1962, where you had these films that are really trying to show how like the Eisenhower era is over and everything is changing in this country. And so you get something like the end of where the boys are, where one of the characters really goes through the ringer and you really don't expect that in like a movie. If you watch the trailer, you know, you would not expect this at all because it's just hijinks in the trailer. Yeah. I think if you come to this movie backwards, like I did the first time through the beach party movies, you're like, you get to this, like, what, what am I watching here? And is this better or worse? I'm not even sure. I think Scott's keynote kind of touches on the reading where this is secretly a movie about how awful men are, which I think is a very strong reading of this film. But it's also sort of a movie about how good girls don't and those who do get in huge trouble. It's it's, it's a rich text. I'm really looking forward to talking it over. Yeah, I'm so glad we have Raya here to bring the historical context because I, I certainly uh, didn't have it going into this movie, although I did know about what happens to Melanie at the end, uh, because just in the in planning this pairing, it kind of uh, came up, you know? This is also my first time seeing the film, Scott. And uh, so I went into it with that knowledge, but also some awareness of the the beach party films of the era. My, my mom was a big Gidget fan, mm-hmm. so we watched a lot of Gidget growing up. <laughs> so going into it, knowing how the film resolves, it was really kind of interesting to track the character of Melanie like from beginning to end and sort of especially how interested she is in Merritt's like speech in class in the beginning and just you know her first date with Dill like I think that could just blow over your head if you weren't you know looking for it uh, you know what it's insinuated pretty heavily to happen there so on the one hand I can like see the, how it would be interesting to like go into this film and be completely surprised by it. But I do think it is, as Keith says, kind of a richer text if you know what it's doing and can kind of track how it gets there. I have kind of a question for Mariah, just based on the sort of context for this movie is like, would an audience be surprised by the places this film goes? I mean, because you were saying there was this period where films did kind of go to some dark places, but at the same time, this is a film that promises kind of a wacky beach 
adventure. I mean, even in the, in the trailers at the beginning of the film, you know, in the scene with the cop telling the other cops that all this wild stuff is going to happen. I mean, it doesn't seem like it's going to be a film that's going to get as dark as it gets. Yeah, I, I think that based on if you were only going at this movie based on the trailer, you would probably be surprised. But people who were familiar with the book, I think, and it was a pretty popular book, not as popular as like Peyton Place, where you, you knew that was, you know, what you were getting with Peyton Place or even the best of everything. But I, I do think it would have been a little less surprising just given this was coming in the midst of a several films that were doing that combo of like frothy comedy and like incest or date rape. It was actually date rape was really common in a lot of these late 50s films that happens in or unplanned pregnancy, another huge like topic in a ton of films like A Summer Place. It's another one with like young lovers, you know, and it does not go well for them. So I think it would be a little a little less shocking, especially because obviously it hadn't been sanitized in the beach party movies yet. So I think coming, um, I think it's also, is it Joe Pasternak, right? Yeah. N- knowing his track record, I think a savvy moviegoer at least would have known that they were going to get a, a mixture of the froth and the darkness because that's just sort of a type of movie that was really popular at the time. And um, even going all the way back to Three Coins and a Fountain, like generally all of these movies where it's like a group of girls trying, you know, their newfound freedoms, one of the girls always ends up either with a heartbreak, a planned pregnancy, death, or rape. Like that just, it always happened. If you saw a group of four girls, other than like uh, How to Marry a Millionaire, right? But that's a little bit earlier in the 50s. This is just, I think, par for the course for a lot of these kind of, I like to call them like, Girls abroad melodramas is sort of a, a subgenre. Usually, it's it's like Rome Adventure or something where they're going to Europe. Or Three Coins in the Fountain is also a, a European one. So having it be the abroad being Florida is kind of fascinating to me. And it even starts with that like really kind of anthropological voice over like like this exotic locale yeah. of Flor- <laughs> Fort Lauderdale. I think Florida hadn't <laughs> really taken off yet. Yeah. You know, like. Well, this is pre-Disney World. I think it's kind of a cause and effect thing, too. I yeah. think I think it was happening and this helped popularize yeah. it. And, and, mm-hmm. you know. Same with um, a film that came later, Palm Springs Weekend, that made Palm Springs kind of into the West Coast destination for young people looking for frisky trouble. <laughs> it's another one, too, where the guy is... The one thing I like about Palm Springs Weekend a little bit more than this one is the like the Yaleys that are the the rapists in this one. There's not a lot of development there and you don't really see why suddenly, I mean, any guy can, any person really can be a rapist, obviously, but there's not a lot of signaling of that. Whereas in Palm Springs Weekend, like the guy is, you know, he's a predator from the get. And then when it, you know, when it happens, you're like, okay, this is, I knew this was going to happen. Which is, I think, how you see the the in, the impact of this film, where it it probably did like throw a few people for a loop. So they, you know, the later films they kind of let you know earlier, like this guy's gonna rape someone. I mean, I, though, I will say in this one, I feel like the moment where Dill is it Dill, uh, yeah, uh, mm-hmm. turns up at her door and she just under, immediately knows what's going to happen is just such a harrowing shocking moment that of course obviously if you if you'd follow those guys any closer you you'd kind of miss the impact of that moment yeah. might be, might have been lost that's true um, i'm actually curious to ask you you have this on blu-ray as you say mariah what is it about this film that you think is special what makes it sort of stand out a- among uh, films of its kind 
I think because each of the girls, even though they're kind of stereotypes, like each of the girls are so well formed for the stereotypes that they are. So like Dolores Hart's, lack of a better word, she's the good girl, but she's like the most feminist of them. She's, you know, talking about sex right away. She's talking back. She's this intelligent person. You probably can tell she has some sort of plan for her life, or at least is attempting to have a plan for her life. Paula Prentice is, I think, just one of those could only exist in the 60s kind of presence. That's why, she, you know, she's kind of retired from acting after a while. But every time she shows, shows up in a movie, I'm just like, yes, we're getting her really frenetic form of comedy, which doesn't always work, but I think works really well in this. Like, I don't think anyone else could have said I plan to be a walking baby maker and it wouldn't have been cringy. <laughs> like, you're like, OK, yeah, I see it. <laughs> yeah. I love her. And like, that was the moment where it's like, this is so kind of like connects with the Stepford Wives, where she's sort of the rebellious yeah. person who becomes a Stepford Wife. It's like, it's like she has that person, she already has that rebellious personality, but she's already speaking Stepford Wives lines. Yeah. It's very she, strange. She's like that in um, Bachelor in Paradise, which is a great Lana Turner movie that I love. And she plays Lana Turner's neighbor, who's like got the hots for Bob Hope, the titular Bachelor. Mm. Well, yeah. And uh, she's hilarious <laughs> in that too. <laughs> And then I just really love Yvette Mimu. I feel like she's such a tender screen presence. Like every movie she's in, she's just, you kind of want to protect her. But you don't ever feel like it's coming from a false place. It always feels like she's just truly this like new soul on screen. Um, so then when she gets, she when she's the person who gets her heart crushed and like her body literally crushed it's like extra hard to watch but also you know you're just like maybe this time she'll make good choices and it's like she shouldn't have to make the good choices you know yeah. i think it play i think that role just really plays well because like you can read it as um and there's some really bad feminist readings of this movie where it's like it's her choices that are the problem and it's like no it's literally not her choices <laughs> but it shows I think really well that she's someone who like in this transitional period between teenagers sort of having this freedom to explore their sexuality. If you coming, if you're coming out of the Eisenhower era where they're not teaching you literally anything, you have professors who won't even talk about it. <laughs> of course, you're going to have someone like her not realize that like these guys are not good. They're up, up to no good <laughs> because she's, you know, she's been taught that like, Oh, if I do what the guy wants, he'll marry me. Like, that's what she's been raised on. And I think she really sells that naivete in a way that is honest and not calculated. We're forgetting Connie, oh, Connie Francis. Francis. I mean, yes. <laughs> what can you say about Connie Francis? She's amazing. She's really she's fun. And like, she's obviously playing the, the, the comic one, but there's a subtext where it's like, she's supposed to be ugly, which I, I was she's not the, getting. She's, <laughs> she's, she's the athlete. athlete. Yeah. You're like, <laughs> okay, yeah. sure. You're like, she's so too. cute. Like, gosh. To go back to the character of, of Melanie and Yvette Mimou and the way she just exudes a certain innocence, naivete, whatever you, you want to call it, like I do find the way this film pairs her with the character of Merritt so, so interesting mm -hmm. in that I think it's possible to read it as like, merit influencing her into these situations, these quote unquote bad choices that she makes. And I, if I'm being ungenerous, I think that's like what the filmmakers maybe in, intended, you know, um, rather than this sort of all men are bad <laughs> reading that uh, we can bring from a, a more modern perspective. And like, I do think like, that is there as well. But it, I think it's a little harder to parse in between like the ch you know all these guys get 
not all of them, but most of them get like charming moments too, especially Ryder and TV, you know, gets gets very quickly for, forgiven and redeemed in the end, you know. So I think like, I don't want to put it in necessarily in the context of like where this film is placing blame, but I think like it is maybe encouraging you to make a connection between the ideas that Merritt is espousing at the beginning and what ends up happening to Melanie, especially, you know, when they're seen at the end where Merritt is so upset and contrite and seems to feel guilty, (laughs) you know, like she never like comes out and says it. But I think that's maybe how we're supposed to read that. I agree. I think she definitely is like espousing a lot of things that she's not living Fine, because mm-hmm. she's like, I don't know. It's hard to read if she's supposed to be like fearful or, you know, like she's kind of, she's just stuck in that same limbo where she knows she has these freedoms, but she has like hesitation, right? Mm-hmm. And it's unclear if the hesitation comes from a moral standpoint of like, I should stay a virgin or if it just comes from fear of the freedom. It's, it's kind of on the line there in the dialogue. Whereas Melanie, I think is willing to embrace it, but in a way that she thinks, oh, if I go to bed with this person, once that means we're married, right? Which is that mm-hmm. old school, you know, save us to marriage. Well, this is the new marriage in her brain, I guess. Emotional and, intimacy. Yeah. And and you're like, oh no. <laughs> because you know, this is like the beginning of modern day hookup culture where you but you know, just ten years later, less than ten years later, what is seven years later, you had just like orgies in the middle of fields and stuff and stuff. <laughs> but like they're this they're all this generation that's just stuck and, you know, I love I love that Merritt learns that, like, you can't espouse these things without, you know, giving foundations and giving, like, advice. And, like, you know, you can't just, like, be the leader and then actually not have any experience. Like, that's not helpful to anybody. But to that point at the beginning, like, neither is the professor. Like, the professor is not helping anybody either. And that's her job. Yeah, I mean, so much of it is about context. And what's interesting about that first scene is there are no boys there. You know, mm-hmm. it's, it's all the women and the danger of these, you know, views that she's espousing, they become dangerous when you insert the men into, yeah. into it and, and everything they bring to this context and the, the predatory aspect. It, like the women in that room, they don't have the tools to even like think ab- about that at this point. And then they're dumped into this Fort Lauderdale situation where it's 80% guys who are on the prowl, you know, and that is not... 80%? That's what it says. Yeah, it says 80% it's, it says men. It says 80% men, yeah. yeah. Oh, right. I, I, oh, sorry, okay. did I say I, I, 80% of the... No, 100% of the 80% <laughs> no, I think of the people 98% there. 98% of the 2% of the are dialectical jazz musicians. <laughs> right. That's, uh, that's how it breaks down. <laughs> uh, I think it's so crazy. I, I'm not sure there's any better encapsulation of the 60s and the fact this is 1960 and 19. 1968, Yvette Mimuse in a movie called Three in the Attic, in which she's one of three women trying to punish someone by by having exhausting them sexually. I mean, it's just a, just a you know just a wild change of mores across just a, a few years there. Yeah, it really, it really. I think this is one of those films that started to break down what a film could be. You know, by I mean it's sanitized compared to the book, but it's still like you were all, you were all shocked watching it, right? Because you're like, oh, 1960, they wouldn't do any of this, and yet. I think it's fascinating to watch these films that aren't quite after the code has fallen down, but like they're, they're like chipping really heavily away and seeing what they can slip in that doesn't even have to be subtext anymore. I felt like the film was kind of missing the Castro angle though. I feel like it's, that would have just kicked it. That would have just brought it to another level. 
honestly, I would have loved to see the version of this that kept that in there. Like these, because the one thing that girls are missing is, and truly this generation I think would have had is a little bit of a political consciousness. We wouldn't have had Mm. all that upheaval, I think in the sixties without that generation you're starting to have more women go to college for degrees. You're starting to have more women in the force. You would have more women in thinking politically. <laughs> going Actually, to jazz I think, clubs. They're jazz yeah, clubs I mean, right. Stuff. Like that. I think that's the main thing that's missing, and that's that's unfortunate and a bit weird to me. That I think it was Pasternak that said that there should be no politics in in cinema. <laughs> and I'm like, mm. <laughs> that's like antithetical to the beginnings of cinema. But but he can. But you can have you know. Great, but you just can't have politics. It's like, okay, cool. <laughs> I hate to break it to him, but there's politics in this movie. <laughs> yeah. There's plenty of, plenty of sexual politics. So to go back to that character of Merritt in that scene at the beginning, because it really does kind of set the stage for the movie. Like, where does she end up? You know, because she comes in this way, you know, because they're, t- they're speaking in abstraction at the beginning. And she's and Merritt, of course, has been thinking a lot about this. And she's kind of rebelling against an older line of thought. But I, I think there's kind of has to be an evolution on her part that comes through what she experiences with her friends and also what she experiences on her own with Ryder, the uh, George Hamilton character. Then you get to that scene in the hospital, which is quite striking, where she's just like, "Have you met any good men lately?" Or something like it, it, it's. I have it yeah. in the keynote. It's just. It's such a. It really is a standout moment where it's like she just doesn't. She's done feeling generous with any of these guys who have just allowed this that something like this could happen. Um, that's a very striking, you know, end point to where we began. Even though obviously the film ends in a very happy note, it's a. Uh, it's it, she, her thoughts seem much comp- more. You know, have to be more complicated by the end. Yeah, I think it's it's fascinating that happens right when she is about to actually finally go to bed with this guy. Like she's finally like I'm going to do it and then her be- you know her best friend is like in the hospital and suddenly she's like fuck all men. How she ends up back with George Hamilton's character at the end I feel like doesn't quite work for me. Yeah. Um like oh you're you're a nice guy cuz you're going to drive us home like Okay. <laughs> He's I guess, very I contrite. Guess. <laughs> I mean, Frank Gorshin's character is the best man in the movie. I mean, that's the only like non awful, awful no, man. I mean, in the he's movie. kind of awful. He keeps calling. He keeps calling her short one. Yeah, well, yeah it's true. It's true. It's true. <laughs> yeah. uh, and, 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 and like, like he, he shows no real interest in Angie until like he can't see. It's it's yeah. implied, mm-hmm. you know. Like, yeah. No, I mean they're all bad. <laughs> I want to root for TV because you know, but but he but he just he just blows it every time. Every time, every, every time, time he he kind of gets back on the right track, he he blows it. Awesome hats aside, not I a would whole lot bl- going I would blow it for, for Barbara um, Nichols though, so I get it. Like I would too. <laughs> really, I just see her. I just saw this sort of like kind of not great Marilyn Monroe. Rowan oh, I love her. I, I love her. She's well, she's so fun. She's one of my you, favorite. You love her here, or no? Just in generally? all of it, like in all yeah. her movies, she has a. I think she does like. I know she gets compared to Marilyn Monroe, but I don't think she's necessarily. By the time she knew she wasn't Marilyn Monroe, I feel like she had her own sort of like Wario version that she was doing mm. that really works for me. <laughs> this is the, this is the Aqua Dancer. We should note for our listeners yeah. that we're speaking of uh, that uh, that TV cannot uh, resist. You're oh, referring TV. to uh, Lola Fandango. That's who you're referring to. <laughs> oh my God. The fish, fishbowl girls were also very popular in the 50s. Uh, fun fact, my great aunt Zay was offered to be a fishbowl girl in a hotel here in Chicago because she lived in Chicago for a while. And she politely declined because she was pregnant. 
So <laughs> it was a very, like, very popular attraction in, like, fancy hotels to have fishbowl rolls. It was a thing. Did she have any sort of, like, training or special skills? Or was it? Yeah, yeah she was or- a showgirl. She was a showgirl. Okay. Okay, so, so it wasn't just like it uh, wasn't out of nowhere, you're, you're pretty, yeah. <laughs> throw, throw you in a, a tank of water she kind of situation. She was really beautiful. I mean, she's still really <laughs> yeah. beautiful. She's in her 90s now, but like, like I wish, almost wish we still had them because it seems really fascinating. There's still the Wikiwachi mermaids in Florida. Oh, I remember yeah. that from that's the 80s true. when I when I went through with my parents and like they're still there. I just looked them up, but um, I think that's probably the last surviving yeah. mermaids, uh, uh, endangered species. The fishbowl <laughs> girls, yeah. Uh, all right. So, you know, this is a film that is written, produced, directed by men, based on a novel by another, another man. Does that feel obvious to you at times? And are, are there moments like the one we were talking about at the water show uh, that perhaps don't play as lighthearted as intended? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, I think yeah. yes. <laughs> Next question. <laughs> you know, is, it, is, is it like, complete, is it just completely obvious from first frame to last that, this, that, uh, that uh, no women were involved in the creation of this uh, movie beyond who are the people on the screen? Yeah, I think part of it is they get almost get there with the recurring joke of like more and more girls on the floor. That's the closest I feel like they get to showing like the intimacy that girls Mm -hmm. often do in groups or feel comfortable to have that many women in a room where they feel pity and the comfort. But I don't think they quite get to the intimacy that the, like they would have been way more helping each other with their hair and the bras and like trying on each other's clothes and like our partnered movie shows. Um, I I think this movie gets close in that aspect, but everywhere else it's like, I don't ever really feel like these girls, like, I don't know why they're friends. I don't know what they like about each other. You know, I feel like there's like little, just like little tiny details that just aren't there. I did really love the, the ever expanding, population of floor girls as like a gag but you're right that like it's really just kind of like a reset point not like any like there's not really any storytelling happening in in that uh, in that room or any character building i guess i should say happening in, in in that room this has a very like made by as the father of daughters to feel, feel to, <laughs> yes. to me like like, yes. like, like there's there's a well-intentionedness to it and like a sort of assumption that you understand something profound about women that is being brought here but there's also just a just a whiff of like you know moralizing didactism yeah. what, you know instructional instruction you know like how how to behave basically that it all comes back to in, in the end so it doesn't really seem interested in wrestling with womanhood outside of the context of marriage you know heterosexual relationships yeah i don't think it also really shows what this like it it shows it it shows what that freedom does by the mistakes they make Mm -hmm. expressing it right but it doesn't show how they really feel about experiencing the freedom freedom. yeah Yeah. exactly right that i think would have made it a really really special film because that it really is like a turn in adolescence in America and it feels lacking to not show the interior of it as opposed to just, oh, now they can do this. Oh, now they can do that. Which is kind of why if you've seen the best of everything, I don't think the movie is as good as the book in doing it, but the book is written by Rona Jaffe. You do get a lot more interiority of these girls and their their young adults in that one. They're like in their first jobs. You get a lot more of the interiority and the conversations and 
I wish this movie had had more of that as opposed to all the conversations being about men. That would have been nice. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, so let's look at the other side. Let's look at who these uh, filmmakers would be experts on, the, the men. Uh, <laughs> what do you think of the men on offer here? Because we obviously we have our fake Yaleys who are vile. Uh, but what about uh, Ryder, TV, and Basil? I'm going to take it back. I think the best man in this movie is uh, Chill Will's uh, police captain. He seems I mean, like yes. a, a level head on his shoulders. <laughs> is he the one that's like, I wish I was dead at one point? Exactly. <laughs> I laughed so hard that morning uh, when I was rewatching it. <laughs> that, but I mean, these are these guys, but Ryder, TV, Basil, they're bachelors uh, number one, two, and three. They seem like projects maybe to us, but are they, are they in the film's eyes? Are these uh, just uh, good boys generally? It's a good question. I mean, I think Ryder is probably the most unambiguously, like, quote unquote, good guy. Like, yeah. he, he, you know, he's he's got all the flaws that a, a red blooded American male might have, you know, and uh, I don't think he's ever presented as someone dangerous. Yeah. I don't think any any of them are uh, any of the, the non faux Yaleys are ever presented as as someone dangerous. And that is an interesting choice in the context of kind of what I was talking about earlier and that like this is a situation where you know the the women should be on guard <laughs> you know and the, but they don't know to be on guard and in the kind of presentation of these dudes as like well-meaning undercuts that idea if, if if the film even has it which i don't believe it does yeah and i think like they're all supposed to be seen as like various types of marriage material yeah. you know you've got you've got like the sure thing in rider you know he's he's rich he's handsome He's ostensibly a good guy. <laughs> and you've got the fixer upper in TV and then the dregs, what's left, I guess, in, in, in oh. Basil. But he's the he's the alt, he's your alt boyfriend. Right, yeah. yeah. Your your arty husband. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, it's pretty talented though. I mean, they're it's, it's sort of generic West Coast jazz, but it's it's okay, you know. I mean, I think Angie blows him out of the water. Like, I mean, he yeah, she's clearly the most. I would have liked to see oh, yeah. a little a- acknowledgement on his part of like, hey, you really sing the hell out of that song that you made up off of the top of your head. <laughs> she's, got, she's got a good voice. I did appreciate that one of the songs mentioned Satchel Paige. There's an acknowledgement that black people do exist in the world. Yeah. It's the only yeah. only such acknowledgement in the film, best yeah. I can tell. Yep. Yeah. Uh, so then basically the standard that is being set here for quality men is not dangerous. That is the bar. That is the bar that has to be exceeded. Mm-hmm. Um, in which I guess. But, the, you know, not da- obnoxious. OK, but dangerous is not, I guess, is sort of sort of where this film lands. You know, but do you, you look at some of these interactions between Merritt and Ryder. I mean, Ryder is pressuring her. I mean, like he he is kind of trying to get whatever he can out of her in a way that is, you know, pretty a little dodgy. You know, it's not that that, that not, you know, it makes her uncomfortable. You know, that I mean, I think the film is pretty subtle, I guess, about that and about her trying to figure out her drawing lines and pulling away and you know, trusting him and a little bit, but maybe not all the way. I mean, I think that's handled in a fairly nuanced way to give the film some credit, I guess. I would agree with that. And I think what the tension that's fascinating, and I don't know if it's purposeful, I would think probably in the book, it's definitely there is this idea of they are in this new place where, as she said, you can play house before you get married. However, there are still factors of American society that are going to judge you negatively, should you do that, right? It's not we're not in the free love era quite yet. We're not in uh, sex and the single girl like that movie hasn't come out yet that book hasn't come out yet 
So there's still a little bit of judgment that these, these are, this is the first generation. They're like that pioneering generation, at least the thirties, I think 2030s, they also pioneered this. Like don't, (laughs) the flappers were definitely sleeping around, but like we, there was a lot of repression in the thirties, forties, fifties. Right. So this is like this new generation openly going back to this like sexual freedom, but there's still, there's still that puritanical judgment. And so like someone like Merritt, who's from, I think she was from like Ohio or something, right? Her dad owns a drugstore. She knows that if she does sleep with this guy and he doesn't marry her, people in her life are probably going to judge her, right? She might even be judging herself. And I think that's that tension is really interesting um, and, and dated, but in a good way, like dated in a historical sort of artifact way of like those choices are still, you have the choice technically, you have that freedom technically, but there are ramifications beyond just uh, like reputational ramifications are still there. And these girls are trying to, you know, navigate that in a, without the help of literally any of these adults, because they're the ones like setting down the tension, creating that tension. It's, it's really interesting. Um, and I think, didn't she mention the Kinsey report, like very briefly yeah, at the yeah, beginning, yeah, right? So yeah. it's before yeah. that was really embraced. Like, she really, really, this, she, It sends her to the dean's office. She's ready. To yeah, how dare you her, read the Kinsey not, report. She may not be able to go back to school. It's really a fascinating movie because it has all this fluff and then it has all this really serious stuff. And you're, it's hard to decide how much of how politically interesting it is was purposefully politically yeah. interesting or just is in retrospect. As far as that tension... I mean, I think this it's almost all in that scene on the boat, which is yeah. such a, a standout scene. I'm the putt-putt, I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> another kind of interesting element of that whole conversation is like her openness about going on a lot of dates and being frosh queen. Like, I don't, I, I don't know if there's like a, a deeper insinuation to frosh queen that I, I don't know about, but it's certainly like he certainly seemed to be like feeling out how permissive and experienced she is in in that moment. So I guess like I will give Ryder a little bit of credit for like asking the the questions and not just assuming. However, all of that credit is immediately stripped away when he has to point out that his IQ is two points higher than hers. Uh, And that's now he's dead to me again. (laughs) I, I also do like to your point, like earlier in the first scene, she talks about all the different, like she calls it making out. And then she goes through literally what they called it in the twenties, what they called it in the thirties, what they called it in the forties. Like my mom went to college, went to school in the sixties. So she would have been a little bit younger than these girls, but she still called it petting (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) because I think her mom called it petting. And I'm like, what? But you know, like there's like the musical with the, the petting in the park song and whichever Busby Berkeley musical that is like it. I think what's fascinating about this is like it makes it very clear that they are not these are not the first generation of college girls to like minimum do some, you know, second base stuff, maybe. Right. Mm-hmm. But they're the first generation that are openly doing it. Like this mm-hmm. is like the everyone. They're just out on the street. They're in the sand, you know, and um, <laughs> I think it's an interesting way of showing that like this isn't as radical as it seems it just seems radical because they weren't really able to show it in movies for decades because of the production code american society in general was like oh you can have sex but like keep the door shut like don't let people know you're making out in public like you know pda wasn't was looked down on and like suddenly you by the end of the 60s again you have like naked people like fucking in san francisco's parks and things right (laughs) and um this is that kind of that watershed of like we know we've always been doing it you know grandma made out with grandpa like 
we're just going to sh- show that we're doing it now. And I-, I think that's an interesting aspect of this movie. Part of the reason I like rewatching it is just seeing all the different ways that it sort of is that key between what was happening but hidden and what is happening and not hidden anymore. Just every time I watch it, there's always like a new little line that I didn't notice. It's also like it's kind of genuinely funny in some places. <laughs> like 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 I said, like I did I did like the gag of there like always being more girls on the floor and TV as you know kind of much of a cad as he uh, ends up being is you know a funny presence. <laughs> I, I guess it's it's not a it's not an unfunny movie uh, for you know all its serious aspects. So I I guess I want to give it its due in that respect. Yeah, and Connie Francis is is great. Like, she really is like a little Judy Judy Garland. She's like such a fun presence. But again, she's like the fun girl. So she's not Mm -hmm. the she's not the one you date. It's like, that's annoying. So I I wanted to get into the setting a little bit because that's kind of a big attraction to this film. And also, you know, a bit of fascination for us kind of looking back on Fort Lauderdale as it's depicted here in the early 60s and maybe what we know about it now. What stood out for you? I mean, what about how men and women relate to each other in this setting and, and uh, you know, what elements, I guess, of the film are period specific and which ones are kind of evergreen when it comes to this slice of spring break uh, mayhem slash paradise? I feel like the bikinis are evergreen. Mm-hmm. I know the bikinis were only like 10 years out in the market, I think, at this point, 15 years, something like that. But like they're always in bikinis. These girls are always showing their belly buttons. Like that's definitely <laughs> their back. Like, there's there's uh, one. Uh, yeah. There's like one shot of I think is it Tuggle or it, it might be Merritt. Like uh, she has like a backless dress on. It's just like it's really good. It's it's very yeah. it's very racy. Yeah. <laughs> like a lot of skin in this. It seems tame today, but like there's a lot of skin in this movie for 1960. I think that I think that's fascinating. And then, and there's some of those bikinis are so. Cute, not to get too girly, but like I yeah. was like, I wish I had. Oh yeah, that so many oh fit and flare dresses. Like yeah, it's um ugh. her like pink play suit that she, you know, I want that play yeah. suit so bad. Um, as far as the setting, I just want to clarify. Like this is mostly sets, right? I'm sure the hotel is, and I think maybe like the opening and closing shots of the beach are maybe location, but like everything else seems very set-like to me. Unless yeah, there's I, a few <laughs> shots of the, like all the traffic there by the beach. That That's yeah. obviously shot on location. I really treasure all the location stuff that is in mm-hmm. this, and I think it is well deployed to give the illusion that you're somewhere you're not, but like at the end, there's a shot of Merritt and, and Ryder on the beach, and then they immediately could tell that they're just on a set with a bunch of sand <laughs> yeah, on it, you know? Yeah. Uh, movies. Yeah. The, the, the illusions they create. But they did do the world premiere at Fort Lauderdale, and on the Blu-ray, you can watch oh, it. Oh, really? It's like a two-minute It's like a two-minute newsreel of the world premiere in Far- Fort Lauderdale. I was looking for like how this was received in the Fort Lauderdale newspaper, and like the review of it is like really boring and not not you know local specific at all. And it's just it's just sort of like this is a pretty funny movie, which I you know it's a weird. I'm glad Bosley Crowther got it, which is he didn't always get it, but he seems to get it with this one a little bit. I thought I read that the the elbow room, the bar, is an actual bar from the area is any can anyone back me up on that but it wasn't like she would have been shot there right it was a sort of like no no but it's like a a a reference to an actual local place and 
yeah, as far as like the the beach scenes, and I did love the visual of just like not even being able to see the beach for all the crowds and the the cars going by. Uh, also, kind of foreshadows maybe a little bit what what happens to Melanie. And I, I mean, like the introduction of Basil foreshadows it to a certain extent too, with nearly running over Tuggle out in front of the the crowded beach. But yeah, I mean the beach itself, the way the beach itself is. Pro- like I don't think there's any actual <laughs> location shooting at a, at a beach here. Is is there? Like I think it's just like <laughs> we get those those shots of the street yeah. and then sand shots. But I, they had a I, good I could time. be wrong. The, but... the second unit had had themselves a weekend. They, 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 <laughs> there's some, some, some helicopter shots at the beginning. You know, they got a little street. They got some street scenes, and then uh, and then uh, the rest is movie magic, I guess. They call it good. Uh, yeah, very pre-steadicam helicopter shots too. It's like I was a little nervous those, those opening shots. We're going to be okay. That's this, right. this is helicopter about crashing. To, about to just go into the uh, crash into the into the water, but it's nice. You know, you get to see like the you know the you know the, these beach towns. They have these little canals and stuff where people live, and yeah, it seems seems nice. But uh, Fort, Fort Lauderdale will get a little rowdier. Over time, though, I do, I do, I do know <laughs> that. But things are going to get quite rowdy, I would say, in our uh, next pairing. Uh, so we're going to wait until uh, next week to bring where the boys are back when we talk about the new film, How to Have Sex. Uh, until then, uh, we're going to get into feedback. Now it's time for feedback, but before we get into it, we want to shout out Film Spotting, the Next Picture Show's Mothership podcast, hosted by Adam Kempinar and Josh Larson. As we record this, Adam and Josh recently recorded an episode asking the impossible question of which Alfred Hitchcock masterpiece is superior, Rear Window or Vertigo? Seems like a trick question. Uh, They also break down the new (laughs) Vietnamese film Inside the Yellow Cocoon Shell. As for feedback, we are... What's this? <laughs> vertigo. Uh, you know, you raise the question. I'll just say vertigo. Yeah. Uh, I love it. The uh, correct uh, answer yeah. is under Capricorn. Uh, under. <laughs> <laughs> I you actually really like that movie. I also have that on Blu-ray. Mariah's on under Capricorn Island over there. She's just she's got a nice beach, <laughs> nice setup there. Nice. Uh, it's just it's, it's just one pure, ticket pure for one. Pure sand beaches on yeah. uh, on. Well, I mean, if we want to get into it, I think I remember on Film Spotting Appearance, Watch Mario, you said that you don't particularly care for Hitchcock at all. So this is... No, I don't. <laughs> I have a handful that I yeah, like. Uh, all right, that's a whole uh, other I, podcast. I just took, I just took my, yeah. I just took my uh, kids to see a rear window at a music box uh and it was it was a glorious experience it was their first it was like the perfect it's a, it's a my first hitchcock kind of experience and so it was theirs and they yeah. loved it as for feedback i saw that with uh with <laughs> yes. my wife oh okay, oh go ahead i was, say, I, saw, I, was say, I saw it at the music box with my wife before we decided to move to chicago it certainly was i don't think it tipped us over necessarily but it's definitely a selling point uh to moving to chicago it's like ah. Oh. What a, what a theater. I'm wearing my music box shirt right <laughs> oh, yeah. now. Oh, no. It's Marlene Dietrich. Oh, I love it. Yeah. See. Nice. Nice. It's from the, I don't know if they're selling these anymore, but it's the, they had these Marlene Dietrich shirts on sale a couple years ago. And I was like, get one for me, Robert. And so he did. Yeah. <laughs> I miss the music box so much. It's still there. It's still there. Oh, I'm not. You're not there. You're not there. That's the problem. Okay. As for feedback, uh, we always say we like it when our listeners write in about anything film-related. Uh, listener Isaac wrote a very long and thoughtful email about his objections to film rating systems, though he appreciates the Kosky family tradition of blurting out a number between 1 and 10 in the car after a movie. <laughs> 
we love that. That that is that's coming back. I can that's that's a guarantee that's coming back because <laughs> we had a good time doing that ourselves. Uh, which you mentioned it. Uh, so we can't read um, his letter in full. Uh, but Keith, uh, do you want to share an excerpt? A uh, quick Koski family method. Uh, vertigo. Three, two, one. I'm gonna say ten. Ten. Yes. Uh, no, I'm only me. Only me. Okay. All right. Fine. No, uh, that's ten for me. Getting back to the letter. Sure. Isaac writes. Not only is film rating reductive, it is inherently flawed. If I rate Citizen Kane and Airplane both five stars, does this mean that they are equal films operating on the same level? Every film one rates must enter into a network of relation if one attempts to claim objectivity, which of course one cannot. Each rater devises their own system. But how much weight do you give to a plot versus production design, especially when a film itself may weigh them differently? There are far too many factors to take into account, especially when funneled into a single number. I believe context about a critic is essential, too, even beyond evident biases like, quote, a certain strain of white man hates Barbie and Saltburn, unquote. If I read a rated review on Letterboxd and then click on that user, I can see all their other ratings, not to mention what they have and haven't seen, which really highlights their relevance or lack thereof to my own taste. I'm also resistant to internet ratings in general, which turn us into consumers who either A, wisely identify a product that is worth our precious limited time and money, or B, get cheated by hawkers of faulty merchandise. How can art be assessed in this sense? Films deal in qualities, not quantities. Emotions, not functions. I believe that a movie may be worth watching for a single scene, even a single moment. It's an abrupt mm-hmm. ending. Uh, it's a very. It was a long email. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, I but there's, there's, a, there's, there's a lot of meaty stuff in there. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, exactly. I think we brought this up before. But it's like you know, I feel like necessary evil is such a such a cliche. But I almost feel like ratings are. Or I always think of ratings. Uh, ratings system is like here's your way into the review. Look at this rating, but then read the whole review. And of course, you know, obviously, I am correct. That is what everyone re- reads, every, clicks through on every review of Rotten Tomatoes, and does not just look at the tomato meter. Uh, everyone does it the correct way, right? I, I give that insight three and a half out of five. Three and a half out of five. Oh, that's that's generous. Uh, but, 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 I would say this person though does kind of say here: if I read a rated review on Letterbox and then click on the user, I can see all their other ratings. That sounds like that. I mean, that to me sounds like you're it's useful to, for something, isn't it? I mean, it's almost it's a, it can be a kind of a thumbnail sketch that you, you can kind of expand from. I don't know. I don't mind. I understand the objection. To but them. to the other part of his letter, like you don't know what context they are making those ratings in, and sure. what is important to them in a film or, or not, you know, so it's uh, it's usefulness is limited in that respect. But it's, it's always going to be, I mean, usually they're attached to something. If they're attached to nothing, then you're not going to get much of anything. But it, usually they're attached to some piece of opinion, yes. <laughs> maybe, the, maybe they don't need to be attached. Maybe you just need to kind of read and glean what you're going to glean. And that, that's, that's fine. It's not necessary. But I, I don't necessarily have an objection to them, I guess, as, as uh, others, others uh, might. Raya, do you have uh, strong opinions one way or the other on on ratings? I have like split opinions. Opinion one is that with criticism, I don't like it. I just want to know what the writer is pulling from it. I'd rather. I, that's why like like the New Yorker, like Richard Brody, never rates a movie. Right? He's just pontificating, and sometimes he goes off on the randomest tangents, and I really enjoy that because I feel like I'm really engaging with him as a writer, and he's really engaging with the film. Right. So I don't like it with when I have to put like I I, I rate a lot of uh, my like beat at Roger Ebert for the most part is like does like C level <laughs> movies a lot of bad rom coms that kind of stuff a lot of terrible sci fi movies 
And, but sometimes there's something really interesting and I'm like, ah, I was really interested in this, but I can't not good consciousness on a four, give it a, a, a two or three. So I have to give it a 2.5 and then I have to decide is a 2.5 negative or rotten on Rotten Tomatoes. And I hate that. <laughs> I don't like it. It's, I don't like it at all. But as a personal person, like on a personal side, like on Letterboxd, where it's just like, this is me engaging with the film, not critically necessarily, but emotionally, because I'm an emotional person, I'm a water <laughs> sign. I'm like, <laughs> June 30th, 19th, like right in the middle of the year, I am the most emotional water sign you will find. And so I give a lot of fives if I just love a movie. Is it, because ter- sometimes they're terrible. Sometimes it's a terrible movie and I gave it five stars because I loved where's, it. Where's the boys arc yet? Um, I think I gave where the boys are four on a five scale. So there you go. So like Susan Kane has five stars and like, I don't think this is a terrible movie. It's actually a good movie, but age of Adeline has five stars. And I stand by that. They're both five star <laughs> movies age in Adeline. the world of Mariah. <laughs> I have watched that movie probably as many times as I've watched Susan Kane. I think I, so I, think I gave go. that a positive review of the dissolve and there were some very unhappy commenters. <laughs> it really is. It's a good movie. It's a good movie, but it really is. I think not helpful in criticism because I think it creates a binary and a lot of people just look at the number or look at the star rating or the grade and they don't necessarily engage with the reading. And I I think I agree with Isaac about that. Like, I think that has created problems when it comes to like just fun, like social media style rating, like letterbox. I love it. And I enjoy it. I mean, this conversation is kind of making me think of another sort of, you know, divide, I guess, in this discussion, which is ratings as applied to films that most people haven't seen versus just mm-hmm. talking about like us rating Vertigo, you know, or like something that everyone's seen and just like it's a way to kind of like establish your opinion on a known quantity in a discussion. Whereas like, a rating of a film out of can, you know, then it becomes a referendum on whether this is a movie worth seeing or not. And as as I said in our first discussion, like, I think ratings can be useful and fun as a entry into a a broader discussion. And that's kind of what my family's rating system was, is just like a, a starting point, you know. But when you bring this element of like, recommendation into it that's i think where it gets a a lot trickier and a little more unsavory yeah and i I think with more difficult films at film Mm -hmm. festivals films that maybe take a couple of watches to really figure out what the film is doing putting a grade on it if Mm -hmm. you've only seen it once and you have festival brain that can like jettison the whole movie for a bunch of people that might have actually liked it if they were able to engage with it without thinking oh well so and so out of can gave it a Mm -hmm. c minus or whatever you know i don't think it's i don't i agree I, i don't think it's necessarily helpful in every circumstances but in other cases it is helpful so that's that's why i can't i don't have like a hard and fast it's like sometimes rating is great sometimes it's terrible ratings Three three stars. <laughs> yeah, complicated. Yeah. Well, the the show review does get five stars from me. I love the show review. Uh, so uh, that's another thing. So I wanted to share uh, another piece of feedback, very short, about the film Self Reliance, uh, which we had recently paired with Tenth Victim. Uh, listener Russell, I love uh, that you wrote, included was, this. Scott. Wrote, wrote simply. I love your show, but the choice of this movie must be the worst choice in the history of the show. <laughs> uh, and I guess my first re- response to this would be, uh, Russell, it's January. We, we, we didn't Wait, have a lot one? of options. Self-reliance or 10th victim? <laughs> Self-reliance. Self-reliance. Okay, sure. All right. But Russell had me going through the archives to see which new film might actually be the worst. 
The criteria for me is a film that nobody really liked or cared about, either on the show or in the public sphere. The three I came up with, Reminiscence, How to Build a Girl, and Baywatch. Those are, uh, the, the, I think those are all worse. Uh, what do you think? Did you all look in, did you all go, go plumbing through the archives as I did? So the one immediately came to mind was How to Build a Girl, because I didn't think it was very good, and I did not learn how to build a girl watching this film. <laughs> it was really successful on two levels. Baywatch was the first one that came to mind for me, but I, I don't regret doing it because we paired it with the Brady Bunch I movie, uh, which is uh, an, an all-time favorite. So it was worth it just for that. The only other one I, I that I debated raising was The Meg, but I feel like you can't really make an argument for that not having a cultural footprint since it got a sequel. <laughs> um, yeah. The Meg? What we, 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 we did Jaws in the Meg? We did Jaws in the Meg, okay. yeah. 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 Oh, I, I, mean, I mean, maybe it just paled in comparison to Jaws. Who can say? But uh. it did pale in comparison to Jaws. This is true. Uh, reminiscence, though, and what reminiscence? I just, I, uh, <sighs> I don't think I was on that one. I, I, if I, I don't know that. I can't I remember what we paired was, it with. I don't I do, recall. So that I wasn't would on Baywatch. Your point. I've, never, I've never seen Baywatch. So should, should I watch Baywatch? Is that what you're saying? <laughs> no, just watch Brady Bunch no. movie again. No, okay. <laughs> really bad. But it was. But the Brady Bunch factor did make that a fun pairing. So that's the part of it too. It's just like maybe we could do something cool with it. You know, when the film is weak, and I think that was the self reliance thing too. It was. It was fun to talk about the tenth victim. I, I kind of like self reliance. It definitely was not the worst film we've done. <laughs> maybe <me> laugh. <laughs> Uh, I think I was coldest on it of of everyone, but like in a lot of these examples, like How to Build a Girl, we paired with Almost Famous, Baywatch, we paired, like I said, with Brady Bunch movie, Meg, we paired with Jaws. Uh, What do we pair Reminiscence with? Um, uh, Eternal Sunshine, pretty good movie. Eternal Sunshine, yeah. So like all of these are being put up against like classic (laughs) movies. That's the premise of the podcast, (laughs) obviously. But you know, in the case of self-reliance, it's being put next to 10th Victim, which is like, it's 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 more of an oddity than a necessarily a stone cold classic the way all those are. I mean, maybe some would argue against Brady Bunch movie. I certainly wouldn't. But but yeah, so I think like that, like it it just like it, it lowers them even more sort of in the in the calculus when you see like what we compared them to, I guess. It just they they pale even more by comparison. Well, we won't do it again. We will never. You know, of course, of course, we're do it again. No, only um, only so, good movies. Three point five stars or above from here on. Out. That's right. And we don't even. <laughs> we don't even. We don't know what we're getting into. Sometimes we just like you know this. Yeah. looks like what might be good for us. Well, we always appreciate when our listeners share their thoughts or recommendations. If you feel so inclined, we can feature your response in a future episode. To reach us, you can leave a short voicemail at seven seven three. Two three four nine seven three zero, or email us at comments at nextpictureshow.net. That's it for this episode of The Next Picture Show. In our next episode, we'll talk about the new British indie film, How to Have Sex, and once again, bring Where the Boys Are back into the discussion. Look for that episode next Tuesday on your podcatcher of choice. For ad-free versions of the podcast and extra content, find us on Patreon at patreon.com slash nextpictureshow. You can find us at nextpictureshow.net and at blue sky at at the next picture show if you want to keep track of when new episodes drop until next week if you find yourself in the 1960s and a hitchhiker asks if you can bang on your pipes and lift a few cans together don't worry he just wants to call you for a beer Mm -hmm.